Greetings, this is Kurt. Here we continue with the third and largest portion of Book One, Enchanter's Lot. If this is your first visit to the Harkin Theater, we recommend you step back and find the first episode of Prelude, The Hostage Prince. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, share, and follow on your favorite platform. We'd like to hear from you. Simply send comments, compliments, and questions to our email. If you care to be a benefactor and help in keeping these complex productions coming, it's very easy. Just buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com listed with the description of each episode. And thank you truly for listening. Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. This is episode 18. The Harkin Theater presents the sound plays of... A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Book One, Part Three, Enchanter's Lot. Chapter 21 Clough led the second pair of horses by their bridles to the rail along the Brass Dragon Tavern's veranda, then checked all four steeds' saddle girths, making sure they were loose for the moment. It would be a short while yet before they left, and he wanted the horses to be at ease until then. Gaewan's elf horse, Maledon, turned its head to watch him with interest, murmuring equine comments to the others who nodded and snorted in reply. Having no idea what the animals were saying to each other, yet feeling like the butt of an equine joke, Clough smiled with amusement and wondered if Gaywan could teach him how to understand Malay at the least. Elf horses, once having picked a master, rarely made themselves understood to anyone else. And though they did not require a bit with their harness, something an elfin steed would never tolerate, it had taken Gaewan's specific instruction to Malidan to allow Clough's touch when putting on his head harness. A brief, brisk wind blew down the street, bringing with it the sound of more hooves on cobblestone, as Chania's personal guard, Lazar, guided his handful of mounts toward the tavern's veranda. Overhead, the progressing morning portended a fine day, with a scattering of puffy clouds tinted pink and amber by the rising suns. Satisfied with his own chore, Clough waved to the fellow elf and strolled over to give him a hand, removing a dried root from one of his belt pouches and starting to chew on the end of it. 
Once done, Lazar shook some stiffness out of his shoulders and stretched himself like a cat, then looked pointedly at the black root sticking out of Clough's mouth. What is that? Clough nipped off the end of it and tucked the rest back into his pouch. Common folk call it Prince Root, but its real name is Zanbath. Prince Root? Lazar raised an interested eyebrow. Some sort of sweet? Nay, this is a restorative herb. Here. Clough dug into his pouch and extracted a fresh one. Try it. Lifting it tentatively from his hand, Lazar viewed the root suspiciously. What does it taste like? Delighted to have the initially taciturn elf querying him openly, Clough grinned. Kind of sweet, kind of bland, but not bad at all. Almost like chewing on a thick tea leaf. Mm. Lazar took a bite and munched experimentally, then chewed with obvious enjoyment. Interesting. A restorative, you say. It replenishes that which is lost during a grueling day or a sleepless night, though I've grown rather used to a bit of it every morning. Hmm. I can see why. Is it hard to find? Not too, but it tends to resist being pulled out of the ground. Lazar swallowed his first bit of it and blinked with mild astonishment. I was thirsty a moment ago, but not now. It's good for helping you ignore thirst, which can be a hazard if you're not careful. Shall we have some hot tea while we await the others? Lazar stopped and thought about this seriously, obviously debating the mores of leaving his assigned post for the lure of creature comforts. Perceiving his predicament, Clough patted him on the back. Stop being so delicate, my friend. You may be a royal guardian responsible for Her Highness's safety, but you're also a comrade of mine now. And being a comrade, I will point out that your charge is not here, and the horses are not in danger of being stolen. There are eight of them here, Clough. A sizable temptation for a thief. Clough raised a finger. Ah, but a horse cannot be stolen if it will not run. Malay, keep an eye on your friends and don't let any of them leave, won't you? We'll be back in a moment. With a comradely wink at Lazar, Clough then jerked his head toward the tavern doors and led the way inside. Lazar followed hesitantly, casting a doubtful glance at Malidon, who watched him go with more than the normal intelligence one might attribute to a horse. After a request and an exchange of coin, both elves returned with mugs of tea gripped in hand and sat on the edge of the veranda to watch the increasing activity of Hopetown awakening to a new day. About halfway through his cup, Lazar placed it aside, removed his dagger, and ran fingers tentatively through his hair. Clough watched as the elf attempted hacking at his hair. Small clumps of chestnut strands fell to the ground beneath the veranda. Why didn't you get your hair cut in the town square? I didn't really have much chance to roam to the vendors and shops. In that case, allow me to help. Clough took his dagger from him. How long do you want it? Not below the shoulder, if you please. Lazar perched himself upright, clearly enjoying the attention. My commanding officer was very strict about personal grooming. While my hair is this long, I keep expecting him to pop up from behind a rock and dress me down for looking unkempt. Well, give me a few moments and you won't have to worry about it anymore. Clough knew he was by no means a proper curtailer, but he and Gaywan had barbed each other's hair on numerous occasions. 
He applied what skill he had learned through trial and error with Gaewon, keeping his strokes conservative. The silence of his concentration quieted Lazar for a short while. A hawk swooped into view above the street and glided swiftly toward them. Hold, please. Lazar stood, quickly yanked a thick glove from under his belt and put it on, then reached up. The raptor lighted on the outstretched gloved arm and, after folding its wings in a flurry of dark feathers, cocked its head and, with a dark eye, scrutinized the elf. Is that a pet, Lazar? Pet? Oh, no. This is my wardmate. Wardmate? Gaewan stepped out onto the veranda and nodded in greeting to both. Are you a mage, Lazar? He didn't recall Chania mentioning it before. No, sir. Theron, that's his name, was bestowed upon me upon my commission as personal guard to Princess Chania. The enchanter had never heard of a non-mage acquiring a ward mate. Hmm. He looked at Clough and wondered why he was holding a dagger. Hmm? His second shrugged. Just some spur-of-the-moment hair-bobbing. Ah. Gaewan nodded, then moved leisurely down the steps to check on Malidun, his thoughts centering on the raptor ward mate and how it might solve a problem he had settled upon just a short while ago while getting dressed. Their intent was to locate and capture Calron. But the dark mage wasn't so stupid that he would just stand and wait for a vanguard of fighters and mages to come thundering down upon him. They needed a lure, of which components they had, but one that should be used safely. Shall we continue? I've left you rather lopsided. If you please. Lazar allowed his hawk to hop onto the veranda beside him, then resumed his place. As Clough started cutting again, the hawk stared with its beak half open at what it presumed to be Clough hacking at its master's neck. Lazar coaxed it close and stroked it. Hold still. Clough carefully trimmed strands around Lazar's ear. What is... What is the range on your communication with Thern? Gaewan was still a little doubtful that this was a true wardmate and not some inferior mimicry. If there is a limit, we have yet to cross it, sir. Gaewan was complimented by Lazar's courteousness. <laughs> Please, call me Gaewan. Too much formality, and people start bowing to each other. As you wish. Why did you ask about our range? Uh, I have an idea concerning our riding arrangement. Chania appeared from around a corner of the tavern. Do indeed. Good morrow, princess. Lazar attempted to jump to his feet with respect, but was held down by Clough's firm hand. Move again, and I might trim an ear and make you a half-elf. Lazar sat erect and face forward. Oh, Lazar. Chania marched around to face her protector, fists on her hips. Why didn't you ask me? I, uh... He tried uh, to stand up again out of reflex, but was held down again. Taking pity on Lazar's awkward situation, personal guard to a princess with little time for himself, then berated for not requesting assistance from this same person, Clough intervened. Not wanting to distract your highness with a trivial grooming, he thought he might like the touch of a man's hand. And then added petulantly, just for his own amusement, If you don't mind. Oh, 
She blinked at what she perceived to be mild irritation on Clough's part, and guessed she had intruded on some unspoken ritual between men. No mind at all. <laughs> Gaewan recognized Clough's facetious play against Chania's ignorance. Who has no mind, Clough or Lazar? Ah, there's a new player on the field. Clough neatly cut a large hunk of hair. Lazar's eyes slid back and forth as the realization of their banter dawned on him. He dared to smile slightly. Not sure if she hadn't interrupted a more lengthy conversation, Chania turned to Gaewan. Pardon my intrusion, but did I overhear that you had a riding arrangement in mind? Oh, we have no minds, but yours has a riding arrangement? Parry and thrust, Clough. We're even, so trim the hair and your lip. Set and match. <laughs> Chania frowned as she tried to decipher what had been said, then quickly gave up and, seeing nothing else was being said, returned to the subject she believed was at hand. What is your idea, Gaewan? Finished with his preliminary inspection of Maledon, the enchanter gestured her to one of the benches on the tavern's veranda, shifting aside his green cloak as he sat beside her. The size of our group as a whole will probably scare off our intended prey. We should split into two sections. Even half-witted thieves size up possible prey before attacking. With a small group leading several lengths ahead of a larger, stronger section, we should be able to attract the right sort of attention. In other words, Calron will be expecting me, but not you. Who would ride where? Gaewan leaned back and thoughtfully crossed his arms. Oh, just offhand, you, me, Flaina, your maiden friend Bryn, we would ride the point section, a band of womenfolk and a lightly armed guide, myself, would be enticing to our robbers, and the rest would bring up the rear several lengths back. And with a sight link between Lazar's wardmate and him, Thern could scout ahead of us and keep the rear guard informed. Being relatively new to the idea of forward planning of maneuvers, Chania nodded approval, not wanting to betray her inexperience. I appreciate your forethought. I'd not taken time to lay out anything yet. I thought of this one only just. Gaewan eyed Clough's tea and hoped Flaina wouldn't be much longer. He wanted breakfast soon. Finding herself strangely attracted to something in his voice, his gentle manner, she regarded him with a sidelong look. The best ideas can sometimes be the first ones. I like your arrangement. What is it about him? The lure of his wearside, perhaps? That such a benign individual could contain a raging beast? She caught herself staring blatantly at him as a feminine form loomed in the tavern doorway. She looked up to meet eyes with Flaina. The half-elf held her gaze for just a moment, as if perceiving her thoughts, then stepped out and touched Gaewan's hand. The thin, gleaming diadem set above her eyebrows captured Chania's curiosity. She was sure Flaina had not worn that previously. Then, to her mild astonishment, Gaewan moved off the bench, turned, 
rested himself on one knee before her and kissed the back of her fingers. He gazed up at her with unabashed affection. My lady. Clough turned to see Flaina smiling ever so sweetly upon her enchanter as he kissed her fingers again. Clough returned to his task, feeling a warm glow of satisfaction in his heart. The wishes of his grandfather were complete, that the diadem should be given to a beloved. May I be allowed to see your diadem closely? Flaina took the seat on the bench next to her, carefully controlling the urge to grin with utter glee as she faced the elf woman. Scrutinizing the piece, which she found unremarkable for the most part, her family owned coffers overflowing with royal jewelry, some of which she had played with when she was young. Chania took inventory of the realm she was in and realized such a gift to a commoner was probably extraordinary. Even more so to a half-breed. Having no prejudices toward children of mixed parentages, she still remained, by her upbringing, uncomfortably aware of the social dislike of the chaotic half-breeds and of the propriety with herself being of royal blood. At the same time, here is a girl from a tiny village, perfectly happy with her companion in their unexceptional town. At that instant, she wished she could have traded all her family's jewelry and riches to feel Flaina's joy for a single day. She feigned interest, not wanting to belittle the piece with her own more expansive tastes. Is that? Chalcedony, tis. And a melding of gold and silver in the elven symbol of our sons. It's a beautiful diadem, Flano. Chania deciphered the mutual brightness between the couple. And my best hopes for your marriage. Thank you. Flana presumed Gaywan had told her already. You are very perceptive, princess, for as you are a jewel in your father's crown, Lady Flaina is my princess. Lazar stopped Clough again and turned to see what it was they were discussing, then chimed in. That is very pretty. How long have you known of their betrothal, Chania? I didn't, she said with a knowing twinkle. Until just now. Flaina wanted to squirm, unaccustomed to the attention. Again, perceiving her discomfort, Chania came to her rescue. As I said, Gaywan, I like your plan. It's quite clever. He tilted his head modestly. Well, it's a clever start, I suppose, for a situation that's foggy at best, as it now stands. Let's just hope that whatever we do, we're clever enough. Rubbing his chin thoughtfully, he exchanged a grim look with Clough. Outwitting Calron, as we've already learned, is not going to be easy. Chapter 22 just how much further do you think before we hit the robber's stretch? Thasgar tapped his boot clean against the trunk of a longleaf evergreen. It had been muddy near the gully where they had watered the horses. Midday tomorrow. Derwan tossed a twig into the small blaze of their campfire. Hmm. 
Sir Giberon leaned against the trunk of another large evergreen. Just far enough away from Hopetown and the Marshal's immediate reach. The tall, freethinker knight crossed arms over his chest and stared into the distance, narrowing his eyes with determination. But not too far for us to reach. Gaewan regarded the young knight with interest, having had little chance to really study him or Chania's half-elfin maiden friend, Bryn, since their meeting in Hopetown just this morning. They had ridden the southwestern road as planned, with no unusual encounters other than the occasional trader, messenger, or traveler. Except for their midday stop to allow the horses a rest and themselves a light meal, this was the first opportunity for everyone to truly get to know one another. As Gibran probed the descending nightfall with his brooding brown eyes, Gaewan appraised him silently. Nearly his height, broad-shouldered, well-built, but not overly so, especially in his ability to wear a chain jerkin all day. His long brown hair reached to just above his shoulders and remained for the most part neat, as did his closely trimmed beard. Gibberon was fastidious in the manner of his appearance, it seemed, perhaps taking to heart his post as a knight. His garb, though plain for the most part, also reflected his neatness, from his untattered riding cloak to his scarred but clean boots. Around his neck could be seen a thin chain disappearing beneath the tunic under his male jerkin. A necklace that, Gawan surmised, bore a pendant of some sort tying the knight to his secret order. And, as far as he could tell, Gibberon was a pleasant individual with quiet control of his emotions, unlike his friend Durwan, who, though ultimately rational, held a loose rein on his coarser feelings. And then there was Bryn. Probably the most quiet spoken of the group, he decided, as he turned attention to her. Presently, the reticent half-elf was preparing some of the food warming over the fire, a chore she apparently enjoyed. He wondered at her quiet nature. Intuitively, he sensed a relative uneasiness on her part where the group was concerned. He suspected it had to do with her half-breed status, evidenced by Chania's discomfort in her initial description of the young maiden. Perhaps the Isle of Gramont harbored more severe prejudices against half-breeds. He hoped Flaina's presence might help her to lower her defenses, but she had said little to his chosen as yet. In time, that would probably change. So, how shall we assign night watches? Gibberon returned attention to the group seated about the fire. Lazar and I have already decided to take the first half of the night. He frowned with concern ah. as he looked up to where Clough was balancing on a tree limb just within the aura of firelight. Now there's no reason for you to take on a watch of that length, Clough. There are eleven of us. We require only a few hours rest each night during this time of Riyadh, and neither of us want to lie awake half the night. Why not let you get more sleep? As autumn progresses, however, we'll need more sleep. He cocked his head with curiosity at the night. I take it you've never spent much time with elves? Not until I joined with Princess Chania. So many things yet to learn. He caught Durwan's wry smirk at his comment and smiled back easily. 
Low chatter resumed around the campfire as acquaintance progressed into friendship. Not long after his brief interchange with Gibberon, Clough caught a faint scent of burning herbs. Rubbing his nose to make sure he wasn't imagining it, then surveying the fire tender to see if any greenery had been thrown in, there was none, he ascended some branches and attempted to get a clear direction of the smell. Chania spoke from another branch above him. Do you smell it too? Yes. He smothered a smile of gladness at finding her in the tree. Earlier they had discussed her homeland at length and, to his amazement, he learned Gramont was not an island of elfin tree lodges, as he originally assumed, but of stone huts and keeps, very unlike the elfin kingdoms of his upbringing. She had been just as amazed to learn of the arboreal villages and such of his homeland, Thornhaven, and was apparently not above doing some self-exploration by climbing trees. What do you think it is? He wanted to shrug it off as nothing more than another traveler's campfire in the distance, or perhaps a reclusive pagan, but the elusive sense tantalized him, curling in his nostrils. I'm not really sure. Should we tell the others? Clough thought about this for a moment, Flaina and Lazar were tending the horses. Ablui was scouting for any signs of wolves or other dangerous animals. The marks of a roaming bear he left behind promised to keep most away. Gan and Thasgar were collecting additional firewood, and the rest were gathered at the campfire awaiting supper. He decided that by the time the word passed around, the aromatic trail would be gone nor would it be helpful to have the entire party trudging through the woods, disturbing everything in hearing distance. No time for it. Let's investigate this one ourselves. That is, if you're interested. She and Gaewan were the ruling leaders, thus they made the final decisions. Chania lifted her nose to the air. <sniffs> Smells wonderful. Makes my head tingle. Which way do you think? He moistened a finger and checked the wind. That way. Then pointed deeper into the forest. Taking the lead, he traversed the branches of several trees before returning to the ground, not wanting to lose their direction. The noises of their camp faded away behind them as they moved quietly over the soft turf. When they had covered almost an entire dragon length and the evergreens had given way to older hardwoods, Clough stopped, hand ready on his sword's hilt. Chania was immediately behind him. What is it? Crouching slightly, he surveyed the hunched box-like shape nestled among the bowls. It was a small hut, the herb scents rising with smoke from a squat chimney jutting awkwardly out of its thatched roof. A pagan, perhaps, but his sixth sense warned of danger. We'll go back. Chasing smells was one thing. Meeting a pagan, or worse, was quite another. Nonsense. I haven't come all this way just to turn back without knowing what brought me here. The hut's door opened, allowing dim red firelight to spill out. The silhouette of a bent woman appeared on the threshold. Mmm. Mmm. Sweet lumps. Smells an elf. An elf she smells. 
Clough motioned for Chania to stay behind him, his hand on her arm. Though the old woman's voice was kindly, there was something unsettling about her that made his feet itch, and he glanced around for the quickest escape route. Chania remained resistant to his touch. The old woman held up a gnarled walking stick. Licky! A small sphere of pale green light spattered to life on the knotted handle. Twirling it slowly in her hands, she then sent the sphere floating out to the elves to where it halted just above their heads. Ah, a gentle and lady elf. Seeing Clough ready to flee, she lifted her palm. Don't run away. Charmed by her politeness, Chania tugged her arm loose from Clough's grip. We weren't going to. We're just passing by. He attempted tugging the princess away. Now, now, don't be afraid. Come inside and have some tea. Smiling, Chania started forward but was halted by Clough. Don't. The crone stepped out and beckoned with her stick, her green sphere floating a little ways ahead of them as a guide. Come, sweet ones. I'll read your fortune. Yes, I will. A cup of tea and your fortune. How delightful! A seer! Father would have them at palace socials. What? Clough stared at the princess, gray eyes wide with disbelief. They were in unfamiliar territory, and she was acting like a child, trusting the first stranger in their path. Oh, yes. It's so wonderful. She tugged his arm in turn and followed the green sphere bobbing ahead of her. Incredulous, Clough opened his mouth to warn her again, then shut it, shook his head, and followed reluctantly. His responsibility now was for her safety. He kept his weapon's hilt in hand. Meanwhile, the crone nodded encouragingly and stepped back to open her door wide. Chania almost danced inside, while Clough stalked warily past, giving the crone a suspicious sidelong stare. The hut's resident hobbled across the oil wood floor and tended a large cauldron steaming over a fire built within a circular hearth of stone. A pot of such size seemed to be incongruous with the small hut, Clough thought. As she toiled, the elves looked around the hut's interior. A large table covered with a patched cloth dominated the center of the one-room dwelling. Upon it, some boxes of spice and tea and some empty cups. Around it, four crude yet functional chairs. On the walls were some faded cross-stitch squares, a piece of what used to be a painting on canvas, and bunches of dried flowers and herbs. Clough took immediate interest in the dried greenery, noting several samples of herbs not common to the old realms. While the crone hunched over her cauldron, stirring and tasting, Chania tiptoed across the room and looked around a sheer veil hiding one corner to find a mattress stuffed with straw and covered with a quilt. Stacked on the floor beside it were several small stone tablets, their surfaces chalk-scratched and edges chipped from age and use. She absorbed it all with the fascination of one who has never seen how impoverished people subsist. Come here, sweet Chania. The princess spun around with astonishment. How come you to know my name? 
She rubbed her nose with a long finger and moved away from the fire. <laughs> Worry not, my dear elf. Sweet Lumps knows everything, just as she should. Cluff crossed arms and regarded the old woman with renewed suspicion. Her cheeks were drawn tight, almost sallow. Her eyes were black and deep with a glint of dark yellow peeking out now and again. Aside from a mole on her chin, there were no blemishes. Her hair was tied back in a tight bun, and her ears were strangely slender, yet not tapered like an elf's. He caught sight of her teeth only once. They appeared longer than most with an uneven or filed-off appearance. What's your real name? The crone stopped short and glared nervously at her. Real name? Yes. You know mine. Tis only proper you tell me yours. Suddenly she smiled warmly. How terribly polite of you, princess. I am called Kale. What are you? Her eyes darted toward him with brief irritation. Then she shrugged haplessly. Hmm. Just an old hermit living in the forest with no one but the little creatures and fairies for company. Thinking otherwise, she had used magic to conjure her light sphere. Clough held his tongue and hoped for an early opportunity to convince Chania to leave. Come, sit with me. Kale fetched and placed a cup of tea on the table. I will read your fortune, as I promised. Chania sat without a moment's hesitation and eagerly proffered her palm. Kale took it tentatively in her own and studied with great interest. Hmm. Hmm. Then flipped it over and, with a bony finger, traced invisible lines on the back. Hmm. Clough scowled, remembering something about the gesture, but not sure what. What do you see? A quest... A search to the north. A company of ten. Ten? But there are eleven. <clears throat> Kale glanced up at him. Please, kind sir, sit and have some tea. Noting she hadn't bothered to call him by name, he shook his head. We'll have to be leaving very soon. Hmm. She returned to her palm reading. Shortly, she lowered Chania's hand and reached for a small leather box amidst the spices in the center of the table. Must consult the parchments. Must consult the parchments. She extracted a deck of very old, much-used turkia cards. Waving her hand over the stack, she intoned the ancient invocation. Kala, Kala, Dubious Kala. at the presence of the cards... Gaewan had once told him the things were only accurate enough as to be treacherous for one who didn't understand how to interpret the frequently ambiguous readings. Thus the old saying, a deer's track do not always lead one to a deer. Clough looked for Chania's reaction. The princess merely watched Kale expectantly, clearly unconcerned with any as yet unseen dangers. He took a prince root from its pouch and chewed it anxiously. Presently, the old crone ceased her chanting and proceeded to place the cards in a square pattern on the table. Chania's attention was drawn to the colorful pictures on each parchment. With a squirm of discomfort, Clough watched as the yellow points in Kale's eyes grew brighter. Mm. Much will be found, much will be suffered. So what else is new? Suffered? 
Kale stared at three cards lying next to each other alongside the formation she was making. The flames of the chimes, omen of trials to come. Beware the mirror, that which is your likeness, but is not you. My likeness? Yes. The crone glanced archly at her. For princess have come the night of the second sun, sighted by the moon, omen of the reflection, and by the black cloak, omen of death, most unusual. Chania, meanwhile, had become quickly distraught with the unexpected gravity of her fortune. I'm used to seers in bright festive garb, casting fortunes of good and amusement for all. Slowly, she leaned back in her chair as she realized what she had done. She had blundered into the hut, expecting to relive a part of her childhood, only to find sinister and confusing portents for her future. And just who is this old woman who knows my name? Though she appeared harmless, Chania began to sense something malevolent lurking beneath the gentle countenance. No wonder Clough was so apprehensive. She also noticed the scent of burning herbs was gone, and wondered if they had affected her earlier judgment. Clough is right. We have no business being here. Hmm. Hmm. Kale hunched over the cards, carefully removing additional ones from the stack and placing them in their pattern. Hmm. Unpleasant, perhaps, but we can change it. Make it different. She looked up at the princess, an indecipherable gleam in her black eyes. Seeing Chania's subtle shift in her chair, the pose of one suddenly repulsed, Clough stepped forward and grabbed her shoulder. We must go. Now. Kale started forward, brushing fingers over Chania's arm. No. No. You mustn't. My sweet loves mustn't leave. Chania found her body responding unwillingly, a strange sensation like that of a web holding her hand to the table. Before they could be struck by the significance of her calling them by her supposed nickname, Kale's other hand opened to reveal a small, raw ruby. Streaks of blood-red light poured between her fingers. Both elves felt their eyes drawn irresistibly to the stone. It was so beautiful, so deep, as a low, discordant hum permeated the atmosphere of the hut. Clough's grip on Chania fell limp, his weapon hand also dangling at his side, his body refusing to respond to his frantic urge to run. Chania's eyelids drooped as sleep stole over her like warm syrup. At the same time, a distant part of her mind found interest in being the subject of a charming spell. She had always practiced on others in her study of the minor magics, but, being the crown princess, she was not allowed to be the subject of arcane practice. Yes. Her fingers caressed Chania's arm. Yes. Kale wants you for her own. My children. Yes. Your sweet flesh to feed my hungry children. Lifting her hand from the princess, she made delicate gestures in the air over the two of them, her false smile fading. Weight seemed to ooze over Clough's shoulders, pulling him down to his knees. The door of the hut slammed suddenly, its crude latch clattering to the floor. 
Startled, Kale dropped her ruby to the floor where it rolled away, its crimson light dying. Her expression a mixture of rage and fear. She spun about to confront the towering figure filling the doorway. Clough and Chania found themselves wrapped in sticky spider webs and struggled to turn slowly. They saw Ablui, his form faint as a distant shadow behind the terrible fire in his eyes. The crone leapt from her chair to stand guard before her cauldron. Yet she was a crone no more, her appearance young, body straight and firm, hair long and black, teeth gleaming white and pointed. Chania and Clough stared with horror at the woman who now revealed herself as a drow, a dark elf. Then they felt Ablui's strong hands on their shoulders as he chanted a sound that melted the webs drawing them down. Clough, Chania, get out. Stumbling in a daze, Clough lent Chania a hand to steady her and made their way to the door. Loyalty and duty made them turn to see what might be done to assist him. Beyond the priest was the stark silhouette of Kale against the bulge of her cauldron and the undulating amber flicker of her fire. Ablui held forth his staff. Foul shadow preying on the light. Avant! Fool! You cannot chase me from my home! Standing tall, Kale reached clawed hands toward him and mumbled something unintelligible. Dare not cross me, drow. I hold thy banishment. Tis you who hath crossed my threshold, worm! From her fingertips shot wispy wraith-like strands of web, flying across the hut and wrapping thickly around the priest. You hold nothing but a dead stick. You shall be sweet meat for my children. If not for the scratching sound on the leaves, Clough would not have known until too late. He glanced up to see a giant wolf spider descending from a tree branch hanging over the hut. Though still sluggish somewhat, his reflexes were quick enough to shove Chania back while he unsheathed his blade and jumped aside. Quicker than anticipated, the dog-sized arachnid was on the ground and racing for him. His sword plunged easily through the thing's hairy hide. It curled up on the ground, twitched gruesomely, and was dead. Several more advanced on them out of the forest. Both elves put their backs to the hut, Chania unsheathing her dagger as she tried unsuccessfully to remember a spell that would shield them. Yes, yes. Kale's web had almost completely enveloped Ablui. She looked pleased with her handiwork. The priest, except for his head and neck, looking like the fly bound in a spider's web. He had not struggled against the sticky stuff. Tis time to feed my children. She brought up a shining curved dagger and stepped toward him. Come no closer. Blade raised high, her eyes upon his chest, she licked her lips hungrily. I will slit your throat, and then you will watch me. Eat your beating heart as you die. Clough dispatched two more of the giant spiders with ease, noticing the faint glimmer of blue surrounding his blade. He knew its power responded in challenge to the presence of black magic. Regardless, he was worried. 
Though he had no problems countering the magic that made the spiders what they were, he could only kill one at a time. So far, however, the spiders hadn't figured this out and wavered just outside his striking range until one of them would get brave enough to attack in a flurry of thin, hairy legs. Chania heard scuttling sounds on the roof above. More spiders were about to drop on them, using the ground attack as a distraction. Their only choice was to go back inside the hut, but a glance behind proved that option worse. Ablui was completely bound in rope-like strands of web, and Kale's dagger was slashing at his throat. Just as Chania was turning to his defense, a single word from the priest struck the air like lightning. Aluk! The webs fell from him like dust. He knocked Kale's blade aside with his staff. Her face fell in dismay. You were warned. He pointed an ominous finger at her as he raised his staff to the ceiling. Chania grabbed Cluff and yanked him aside with her as three spiders fell from the roof, just missing them. Eyes wide with dread at the priest and his staff, Kale staggered backward and leaned against the stone of her fireplace. Ablui held his staff high for a lingering moment, almost as if he tantalized her with it. By the powers of the light, do I deliver this unto thee! Then brought it down swiftly and struck its heel on the oilwood floor. Suddenly, she was gone. As if waking from a terrible nightmare, Cluff and Chania blinked at their surroundings with astonishment as Ablui walked around to face them. The hut, fire, cauldron, kale, spiders, all had vanished. A cool breeze shuddered through the forest. Cluff had to turn around several times, the sudden change leaving him feeling unbalanced. A few moments ago, his sword had hummed and glowed blue in his hands as he hacked at giant spiders. Now it was dark and cold, as if nothing had happened. Only the stain of spider fluid on the blade offered testimony of the brief battle. He finally allowed his eyes to rest on the priest, who regarded him with a knowledgeable stare. Without a word, Ablui took their hands in his own and started walking back to camp. It was a few moments before Chania found her voice. What happened? A manifestation of evil, the force that struggles eternally against the light. Drow, your dark cousins of whom you never willingly admit exist. They reach out from the Tumwethia, Valley of the Void, somewhere in the northern wasteland, it is said, to scourge the lands, hating all who live and breathe free of oppression and slavery. They are masters of illusion, laying clever traps. Illusion? You're saying the fortune she read was false? Fortune? Ablui stopped and stared with apprehension at her. Tell me what this drow did to you. We, we didn't know she was drow. That's obvious. What did she do? Gave us tea. Did you drink it? We never really had a chance to. What else? With each question, Chania felt worse and worse 
as if she were the accused in an impromptu trial, while at the same time her own anger intensified. Yet I dare not refuse his questions. So grave was his aura. She swallowed as she sought courage with which to face up to this man, this priest of a belief about which she knew little. She read my poem? Hmm. I noticed cards on her table. Were they the Turkia? Of course. She found irritation with him the best salve for her fear of him. How else would she have read my future? Hmm. How else? Yes. Was she reading it or making it? What did I do wrong? A simple fortune-telling is all. She stopped to minister quarrel, a rush of dread closing her mouth, as she realized just how close she and Clough had come to slavery or death. His long flaxen hair moving with the gentle breeze like a faint halo, the priest stepped close and stared down at her, searching deep into her eyes, his own of bright blue fairly glowing in the darkness of the forest. A simple fortune drew you in, you say? Simple elf, I say. There is no way of knowing what part, if any, of this fortune was truth. By allowing this drow to enter your sphere, you may have allowed her to start a cycle of events that doom you to that which she described. She remained silent as she remembered everything Kale had said. She felt like a child under Ablui's massive form. The Tyrkia, plaything for sorceresses, used not only to read the past, but to shape the future. If I were thee, Princess Chania of Gramont, I would reign a wide berth around anyone professing fortune-telling. His holy fire faded as quickly as it had flared and, without another word, he encircled them with his arms like a father would his children and resumed their walk back to camp. How did you know of our peril? My master warned me of the danger that had befallen you. Tis fortunate I was scouting close by. Aware that Ablui referred to the omnipresence of his spiritual teacher revered among freethinkers as the Living One, Clough offered silent thanks. For, as charmed as elves' lives were supposed to be, he felt his self-assuredness knocked down several notches by the apparent ease with which this drow woman had invoked her powers of control over them. I am most grateful. I'm sure he is aware of all our thankfulnesses. Chania, on the other hand, was astounded by the idea of Ablui's master, of whom she did not know, having been aware of their situation and taking time to warn him. Is your master still here? Maybe he could answer her questions about this unusual religion of which these mainland elves seemed to follow. Yes. Wonderful. I wish to meet him. Someday. He smiled secretly. Free thinkers just aren't going to make much sense. What sort of staff is this you wielded against Kale? Needless to say, she was more than impressed with his banishment of such a powerful woman. To her befuddlement, Ablui stopped and doubled over with a long, hard laugh. <laughs> 
This is not a legendary staff of divine power, and by striking it on the floor was merely a bluff to avoid a drawn-out conflict. I assume the drow believed it and fled in what she imagined might have been the last instant of her existence. He patted the staff lovingly as they continued walking. No, this is only a simple walking stick. A close friend for many Riads. Soon they spotted a campfire in the distance. I'm cold. Ablui pulled her close as they walked. To be expected after your encounter, come warm your body and your thought around the brands. Gawan, Thasgar, and Derwan are in the middle of an excellent riddle and joke session. What? Without me? Clough picked up his pace. I'm not often given a chance to outwit Gawan. Ablui patted him on the back. Ha ha ha, good. Let us see how a second who dances with his sword can match wits against a man who converses with his horse. <laughs> Laughter erupted from the fireside, melting the memories of the old crone as they entered camp. <laughs> of Doom, Part 3, Enchanter's Lot. The sound plays of the novel were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2023. Character voices for Episode 18 are performed by Christopher Adam Woodard, Richard Hammer, Darcy Aridell Hotelling, Jackie Illig, Marcel Hammer, and H, the Great and Powerful. The Sextology of Novels are available through Amazon.com, on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly and at lowest price plus shipping that includes additional bonuses from the author. Merely submit a request to our email. Music for the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by Evan McDonald, Francesco D'Andrea, Sarah Chapman, and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Public domain music performances are licensed under Lieber Lieber Creative Commons. Sound effects and original foley provided by Freesound.org, Cusp Studios, and the BBC Library. This was recorded on location in The Universe.